Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Keeping Pace in Women's Cancers, Ovarian Cancer from IO to PARP, is provided by Agile and is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here is Dr. Floor Backus. Immunotherapies have changed how a number of different cancer types are managed because they have significantly improved the quality of life and survival of so many patients. But what is our role in ovarian cancer and how do we determine their use in the PARP era? Welcome to our discussion on keeping pace in women's cancers, ovarian cancer from IO to PARP. I'm Flor Backus and I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Coleman. Welcome to the program, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. I just wish we could be face-to-face, but nonetheless, happy to be with you virtually. The focus in ovarian cancer, as with many other tumors, is on finding predictive biomarkers. Where are we today in that area, Robert? Predictive biomarkers are specifically focused on aligning a therapy or an intervention on the basis of some characteristic and expecting only that group to do better. So with respect to predictive biomarkers in ovarian cancer, we've had very few It's just been this last maybe, I don't know, five, six years where we've started to understand the role of the homologous recombination or DNA damage response alterations, factors like MSI status within the tumor, tumor mutational burden, that these join a very limited number of other biomarkers that we have had experience with, for instance, estrogen and progesterone receptor and mitral cancer. And so as we think about what's happened in the last like five or six years or so, as, as we, the PARP inhibitors have started to come on the scene, we recognize that these BRCA1-2 mutations we found in tumors were aligned with an intervention that's targeting that specific pathway, the PARP inhibitors, which we're going to talk about. We now know that we can broaden that particular character to homologous recombination deficiency. So even in wild type for BRCA in the tumors that these agents seem to have some merit. And then as we expand into the immunotherapy, understanding MSI high status, tumor mutational burden, and these factors now have also been aligned with specific therapies. And of course, we have approvals that have been based on that. So as we look at this and spreading this information around the world, we're starting to see this uptake in more targeted therapies using targeted agents. But the key to this, the key for all of this success is understanding the background or the underlying component of what a predictive biomarker is. Yeah, and I think one of the other biomarkers that we also hear mention of a lot of times is the PDL1 as a biomarker. And while that may be a reasonable biomarker in some other diseases, we've just not seen that similar success in ovarian cancer. We still have a a long way to go. PDL1 status does not seem to really predict if patients are going to respond to immunotherapy, at least not for ovarian cancer. I think our approach is focused pretty strongly around the BRCA and tumor assessment. So we generally will get now, because you can almost do co-testing with most diagnostic kits, so you get both tissue and blood. And I think that's going to be important when we try to decide how we're going to utilize that information. But at least we understand what the somatic and germline status of the patient is. Obviously, germline data is also important for doing risk assessment for familial members and as well as the patient herself. And, you know, when you started to think about, well, where do these drugs work relative to their own predicted biomarker? Well, MSI and TMB are, you know, ones that we now have linked therapeutic agents across multiple different tumor types, including ovarian cancer. So the question is, is, and I question myself this as well, you know, 
maybe we should be adding it like we do with endometrial cancer, at least to get that assessment done at some point along the journey. So Flora, the next big question is, you know, what do you do with these testing results? Um, I think there's been significant progress with the use of PARP inhibitors and platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. What do the latest data tell us? Yeah, we have a lot of data now available, very exciting data in the platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. We've recently had results from the SOLO2, the NOVA trial with niraparib, Ariel3 with rucaparib, and all of those showed similar decreases in risk of cancer progression or recurrence with the use of the PARP inhibitor versus placebo maintenance. And all of those also showed activity across for all comers, but specifically for those patients or higher and longer progression-free survival for those with a BRCA mutation or who showed evidence of homologous recombination deficiency. But now, more recently, we've had the long-term data from the SOLO2 that was presented at ASCO last year. And the overall survival for these patients who received elaborate maintenance in the recurrent setting versus placebo and who had a BRCA germline mutation, they still had a 13-month overall improvement or improvement in overall survival. And so their median overall survival went from 51 to 38 months, which is remarkable to have that in the recurrent setting. And now that we've seen that in a recurrent setting and have taken all these PARP inhibitors to the front line, I'm very excited about the results that we've seen there. SOLO1, for example, which was a laparib compared to placebo for patients with a BRCA mutation, either germline or somatic mutation. And while they only took the study intervention, so a laparib or placebo for two years, it showed a huge improvement, three and a half years at five-year follow-up in progression-free survival. So I am really encouraged by these things that we're now seeing and with this long and the flattening of the curves that hopefully we'll see that translate also into overall survival and that we're actually curing more patients, which is something really that we've been waiting for, I think, for a long time in ovarian cancer and haven't really been able to do. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. I think what is really remarkable with that longer follow-up we saw in Solo One is, just as you mentioned, that the tails of the curve don't come back together. And we have seen that with other biologicals, particularly with bevacizumab in, in all of the trials, essentially, that have been run with that agent. But you know, with five years and still seeing a 28% difference between the curves, that's just, to me, very remarkable. Is there a patient population in the platinum sensitive space where you don't, you know, for instance, use PARP or you have to make a decision between PARP and BEV? Because BEV is also approved in the same situation. Absolutely. Now, when you are choosing your PARPs, how do you select which drug is the right drug for the right patient? I love it. Yeah, we've gone through this, this question so many times. I think what I've come to understand is that many, many people get comfortable with the drugs. I think from an efficacy standpoint, we aren't nuanced enough to see that there's a big discriminator between them. So it gets down to how you manage the adverse events and how your patient actually tolerates you know, different regimen schedules. But ultimately, it's how do you work well with your patient to make sure that the patient can stay on effective dosing of the drug for the longest duration of time, because we know that that's the key. But I think that many people just get comfortable with one, know how to dose modify it, know what toxicities to look out for and know when they come. And so then they just you know, feel comfortable with knowing that the efficacy signal will be basically consistent between the three. Yeah. And I think for myself also, if I have a patient with difficult to control hypertension, I'll typically try and avoid niraparib or very high cholesterol. I'll try or LFT problems with their LFTs. I'll try and avoid rucaparib. 
but those are just some of the main things. Otherwise, I agree with you. They're very similar, but every patient can respond different to each of the drugs, which kind of keeps it interesting for us, for sure. For those just joining us, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Flora Backus, and I'm here today with Dr. Robert Coleman. We're discussing the emerging perspectives in the management of ovarian cancer. So Robert, let's turn our attention to immunotherapy in ovarian cancer. We know that single-agent immunotherapy has not given us the returns we were hoping for. So is there still a role for immunotherapy in this space? I do think that the secret sauce for immunotherapy, you know, probably is there for ovarian cancer. But I think the mistake we made was adopting what we were seeing in melanoma, lung cancer, and others that directly into ovarian cancer. Tumors essentially kind of making that discrimination between tumors that are driven by high mutational load, high new antigen exposure, versus those tumors that are associated with high numbers of copy number alteration. Ovarian cancer is a high copy number alteration tumor. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop looking because I do think that the benefits that we've seen in some unusual responding cases, both with immune checkpoints such as CTLA-4 and PD-1, PD-L1, but in certain tumor types where we've seen these really long tumor control situations in recurrent patients where we wouldn't have expected it. And they may have stopped therapy, but still had good long-term tumor control. So these kind of unusual responders, I think are telling us that there is a way to educate the immune system to a specific tumor where you can get long-term disease control. So I mentioned earlier about, you know, TMB and MSI status because in ovarian cancer, we're talking, you know, 3% to 5% maybe of the tumors that fall into this kind of disease category. And I think this is probably also one of the big detriments to the phase two experiences that we've had with immune checkpoint and ovarian cancer with kind of an all-comer design is that we really, we checked their PD-Well1 status, which isn't a great biomarker. We didn't check their MSI status, which is a good biomarker. So we really don't have a great you know, kind of annotation of our current experience to date. But I think we're starting to learn. And as we continue to evaluate, you know, ways to improve this by targeting other inhibitors, I think you know, obviously there's been a lot of interest in some of these other factors like OX40 and TIGIT and some of these other components that can help increase the awareness of the immune cells in the tumor microenvironment and also kind of decreasing the inhibition effects that can be there. Yeah, I agree. I think basically what I'm hearing you say is how do we make these tumors more immunogenic or how do we make them more susceptible to the immunotherapy? And we've done a lot with the single agents, but I completely agree that we can't just look at one active agent and we need to combine them. We'll probably need to combine them with other things. And we've seen some good responses when we combine it with antiangiogenic treatment, like you mentioned with the CPLA4 agents, TIGIT that's under study now in solid tumors and not specifically necessarily in just ovarian cancer quite yet, but I'm sure that that is going to come up. And you mentioned a couple of other ones, X4, and there's many more. Being a trial with Rucaparapinibolumab, GOO with Dervalumab, Bevacismab and Olaparib first with the Raparib, Dosterolumab, you name it. There's lots of different combinations, Premalizumab with Olaparib. So I think over the next couple of years, we're going to know a lot more. Is immunotherapy here really to become a big player or should we find different avenues and maybe focus more on tumor vaccines or T-cell therapy or things like that? Well, this has certainly been a fascinating conversation, but before we wrap up, Rob, can you share one of your take-home messages with our audience? 
Well, I guess my one take-home message is to remember what I mentioned about the predictive biomarker. That's going to be super important, I think, for us going forward. And to add on to what you mentioned about the trials that are coming in the frontline setting, because as you mentioned, we've got three in addition to chemotherapy, we have three strategies that we're trying to look at. We're looking at PARP inhibition, we're looking at immunotherapy, we're looking at antiangiogenesis. These three agents, we think, have a very important role to play. Yeah, I couldn't have said that any better. I fully agree with you, and that was a really nice summary. And then, as you mentioned before, finding that biomarker that would predict who may respond to immunotherapy early, and if they don't have that biomarker, how can we make the tumor more immunogenic and less immunosuppressed? then yeah, we're going to make some great strides in ovarian cancer. So lots of work still to do. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank my colleague, Dr. Robert Coleman, for sharing his valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, this was really enjoyable. Thank you again. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Agile and is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com agile. Thank you for listening.